Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything he had, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father's and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has been back safe and sound. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet she never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word, and we can trust everything he says. Well, you might find it helpful if you have Luke 15 open in front of you. We're going to think about this uh, together. Obviously, this evening is a bit of a change to our planned schedule, and this is all a little bit last minute. Um, I, I, John, obviously, I was due to speak tonight, and then... Uh, yesterday, I knew he was going to be out of action, and I had somebody else lined up uh, for tonight who texted me this morning to tell me that he was positive as well, uh, and uh, I'll not tell you who that was because that's his confidential medical information. I don't mind sharing John's, but I, I, don't, have the permission. I don't have permission to share the other person's. So uh, I, uh, I, I really was, was sort of thinking, even actually during the morning service, what on earth are we going to do tonight? And uh, yesterday we, were, we were, had a delightful morning uh, with a membership class, and we were sort of explaining a little bit about 
about Hill Street and some of the things that makes us us and some of the emphases we have. And I, I realized that, that this parable has been really important for us, this parable of the prodigal son. And it has shaped, I think, a, a fairly a significant a sense of what we understand uh, the gospel to be and how the gospel is to uh, apply to us, how much we need grace, and, and how we sometimes go wrong as we think about what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. One of the books that was very influential in my own life was Tim Keller's Prodigal God, and lots of what we're looking at tonight really comes out of this. And, and there was a time when I would have said that this was you know, basically sort of required reading for a Christian, and, and I, I certainly would strongly commend it to you. It's not a difficult book, but the, the issues that it raises and the, the thoughts that it puts in our minds are, I think, very, very profound. Now, we often call this the, the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means uh, wasteful uh, or extravagant. That's how uh, Keller is able to call his book the prodigal God. Not that God is wasteful, but he is extravagant in his grace. And, uh, of course, we know that the, the younger son in the story goes to the father. He asks for his share of the inheritance, and he wastes it. He is extravagant with it. He blows it in the far country. And there are a couple of things that we should notice about the younger brother. Um, we're, we're not really concentrating on him tonight, but let's put that in context. Uh, first of all, we should understand that, that in him going to the father to ask for his share of the inheritance, he really is is doing something that is just seen as, should be seen as absolutely awful. You can picture what, what he is really saying. He's saying, now, Dad, you're, you're getting on a bit, but you're not getting on a bit quickly enough, and your stuff I want. I, I, he's really saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And so I want the stuff that is going to come to me whenever you die, but I want it now because you're still looking fairly healthy. And so it really is the most obnoxious thing for him to say. And the father, who of course in the story is the picture of God, the father who would be within his rights to banish his son, maybe even to have him put to death in that culture, accedes to his request. He is portrayed as long-suffering and incredibly merciful. So, so, so this is, is the, the first thing, the, 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 the outrageous nature of this request. We see, too, the father's long-suffering nature whenever we find that he's watching for the son to, to return, and he runs out to him and embraces him and, and throws a party, and, and the forgiveness seems to be just so total and, and so amazing. And it was much, much more, you see, than the younger son could have hoped for, because whenever he rehearses his speech uh, and comes uh, uh, in verse 17, you see, he, he says, I will set out, and uh, verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He has a plan as he's thinking about going back to the Father, he has a plan that he's going to work his way back into his Father's love. And that's really what he thinks the route back is, his effort to rekindle the Father's love for him. In other words, there he is in the far country, 
and he has no sense of just how deeply his father loves him. And so that idea of, of trying to work our way into God's love is, is deeply in us. I think Jesus is showing us this in this parable. It's, it's deeply in us that we want to, to work our way to earn our salvation, to earn our acceptance from the Father. Now, though the, the younger son, the prodigal son, often names the parable as it were, in many ways he's not the purpose of the parable. There are two sons in this story, and actually this story builds up to the point where the focus is on the second son. And really what we're wanting to look at tonight largely is the elder brother and to understand what this part of the Bible says about him and therefore about us. Now, many years ago, I was with a group of young people doing some outdoor pursuits, some outward bound stuff, and one of the activities we were doing was rock climbing. And we went to a small cliff, it was outside Newcastle, and um, we went to a small cliff up in the moorns, and, and the, the young people were helped to get into the harnesses and the helmets and all that sort of stuff, and they were clipped into the safety lines, and they made their way up the cliff face. And, and they were attached to the guy at the top uh, by the safety line, he was the instructor, and he was sort of telling them things, and now and again he would sort of just pull on the safety line just to take up the slack or, or to maybe help the, the, the young person make a bit of a traverse across the cliff face and uh, just make sure that they wouldn't slip or fall. And partway through the afternoon, uh, he was doing this with one of the young people, and uh, as he, he just increased the tension on the safety line, it simply came away from her harness. And what she had done was when everybody else was doing these complicated uh, clipping-in procedures, she just stuffed it into her pocket. And, and there she was, she was halfway up this cliff, and uh, she was basically uh, without any safety line at all. And, and uh, it, it all worked out okay. He, he came down the cliff and, and attached the safety line onto her properly, and she was fine. But, but you see, from a distance, it looked as if she was absolutely secure there. She was connected the way that she should have been. But actually, the truth of the matter was that she wasn't connected at all, and she was in a very, very precarious position. And it is, of course, very possible for us to look as if we are spiritually secure, as if we are fully connected, as it were, to God, as if we are uh, rescued and saved, and yet actually to be a stranger to Him. And that's what this elder brother shows us. He shows us that we can be lost, in the, not in the far country, but we can be lost at home. That's where all of this is going. He comes to prominence, of course, as he is coming in from the field. He's a hardworking boy. He's coming in from the field. You can just imagine him making his way through the village. And it says, he came near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So in those days, whenever there was a party, you hired the band, and chief among the band was the drummer, and the drummer was, was beaten out a bit of a rhythm, and in the, the, the still air, presumably, that carried a long way, and, and he could hear this music as he was getting near the house, and he was saying, oh, there's, there's music, I wonder where that is, and he goes, it seems to be coming from near our house, it seems to be coming from our house, what on earth? is going on. And he arrives home and he asks some of the people who are standing outside, it might be servants or it might actually be uh, young people who, who aren't able to get into the party, they haven't got their ID with them, and uh, they, they, they are standing outside peering in, and he says, what's happening? And they know all about it, verse 27. Your brother has come 
he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And, and the brother is angry and refuses to go in. Now, what, what's the context of the story here? It's really important. If you look back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you understand why Jesus tells this story. Chapter 15, 1 and 2, the, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you can just see what's going on in their heads. They have this very stratified view of, of Jewish society and particularly how God relates to people. And, and they think that because of their good and religious lives, and their lives were incredibly outwardly good, and they were incredibly religious. Because of all of their religious effort, God favored them. God was predisposed towards them. But there were other people, tax collectors and sinners, who were absolutely at the bottom of the heap. And in their heads, God had no time for them. But those were the ones that Jesus was often spending time with. And they were the ones who were obviously responding to Jesus. And they couldn't get their heads around this. And in response to this mumbling and grumbling of the Pharisees, Jesus tells three parables in quick succession. You see them there? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. Bang, bang, bang. And the story is God rescues lost people. God rescues lost people. God rescues lost people. But in the third story, he then tells the story of the elder brother, because the elder brother is the Pharisee. The elder brother is the one who is grumbling at the younger brother being welcomed in to the party. So this is, you see, what's happening. Religious people like them who live uprightly and who uh, keep the rules and find it hard to understand how people who are in many ways very, very different from them are also acceptable. They, they, they just, this is who the elder brother is. And the truth is, you see, that these people were actually not half as secure as they thought they were. They were like that young girl that day halfway up the cliff in Newcastle. They were not connected to God at all. And Jesus tells this story in such a way as to make that really plain to them and help them to see what they needed to do. So this elder brother really looked as if he was the perfect son. Sometimes I, I call him with a family and, and, you know, ask about, about their kids and so on. And they'll say, oh, you know, the, the boys are great. They never give us any trouble. Some of you said that to me. They never give us any trouble. And uh, th this is exactly this sort of boy. Never give us any trouble. He's just such a great fella. Does everything around the house. Uh, didn't give anyone in the area anything to gossip about, didn't squander the father's wealth and wild living. He was the hardworking son. And whenever the father welcomes his brother back and restores to him that status of son, because that's what the robe and the ring and the, and the sandals and all involve, uh, it, it shows that his heart is just full of rage because his heart explodes. And we actually see that his relationship with the father is not good. In fact, he is a lost son too. So the, the coming home of his younger brother is just like the instructor putting a little bit of pressure on the safety rope, and suddenly we see that he is unattached. 
And that's why Jesus tells this story, to show these religious leaders that they are grumbling at all these sinners, as it were, coming into Jesus' sphere, and yet they're lost as well. They, they didn't go wild in the far country, these people, but they're lost at home. Now, a couple of things that we see here, two or three things that we want to just see here as we think about what it means to be lost at home. Uh, first of all, let, let, let's, let's look at what being lost at home looks like. This is, as I said, he's the perfect son. He's hardworking. He's upright. And yet we see into his heart here, isn't it true that sometimes a little bit of pressure and we find out what's really inside. We see into his heart and we find that it's not good. So his father comes out to invite him to the party. And you see what he says to him in verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. So he'd been working, no doubt about that, all the jobs were done, but his work is characterized by a joyless obedience. I've been slaving for you. He doesn't love the father, he resents the father. Just reminds me actually of a, a point at which a, a Martin, I think this story is, is from Martin Luther, whenever he was spiritually struggling and, and trying to work out his relationship with, with God, and he was a, a monk, and he was working so incredibly hard, and he was a, a confessing his sins so often. He was climbing up the, the, the steps on his knees. He was doing all sorts of penances and so on, and uh, you could look at him, and you would imagine that he was the most upright and, and diligent of monks. But as somebody said to him one time, Martin, don't you love God? And he said, love God? I hate him because he just saw God as a tyrant. And at that point, he was distant from him. Well, this is exactly where, where this man is. He doesn't love the Father. He resents the Father. The, <clears throat> the work that he does doesn't spring out of love for the Father or a relationship with the Father. It's not the fruit of his, his a, a tenderness to him. And, and Jesus is making the point that these religious leaders, they're working hard all right, they're keeping all the rules, and they're moral, and they're upright, but it is not springing out of a, a, a loving relationship with God. Their, their works are not the fruit of, of their love for God. They're, they're really trying to earn their love for God. They, they, they think God owes them because of how good they have been. So Spurgeon once told a story that I think Keller quotes maybe not in the book, but, but I've heard him quote it, that's really helpful. And this is how the story goes. Once upon a time, a gardener grew a great garden, and he grew the, the best and the greatest carrot that anyone had ever grown, and he gave it to the prince. And he said to the prince, I want to express my esteem and my affection for you by giving you this carrot. And the prince, discerning his heart, that he just wanted to express his love and admiration, thanked the gardener, and he said to him, well, you know, I happen to own the land next to you, and I want you to have that so that you can go out there and you can be twice the gardener. And the gardener went home rejoicing. Well, word about this got around, and a nobleman heard about it, and he thought, wow, if a gardener gives a carrot to the prince and he gets three acres, what would happen if I gave him something much more valuable? And so he went to the prince and he said, O prince, I raise horses, 
and this is the best and greatest horse that, that I own, and I want to express my esteem and my affection to you, and I would give you this horse. And the prince discerned the nobleman's heart, and he said, thanks very much, and he walked away. And the nobleman said, wait a minute, O prince, um, didn't you hear what, what I said? And the prince turned to him and said, yes, I did. He said, the gardener gave me the carat, but you gave yourself the horse. Now, can you see that we're like that with God sometime? We, we give things to God, we do things for God, and we're, we're doing them so that he really give us something better in return. It's really a sort of old form of paganism in many ways. If we're attempting to do things for God in order to wangle something from Him, then we're really giving things to ourselves. So look at how the son goes on, <clears throat> verse 29. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't call him his brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So you see what he really wants. He wants what the father can give him. What his heart really wants is to be partying with his friends. So actually, he's really quite envious of his younger brother. There maybe even was a hint that he would have loved to have done what the younger brother had done. Because what he's really after is just the same. He really wants what the father can give him. He's not after the father himself. So the relationship he really cares about is that with his friends. But the relationship with the father doesn't seem to matter all that much. It's just used so that he can do something else. Now, actually, that's what the younger brother was doing at the start. He said, Father, I want your things, but I don't want you. And you see, we can do that whenever we're living a very wild life. We can just sort of say, <clears throat> I don't really bother with God, but I'm really happy to take the things that he gives me, the health and strength to enjoy myself and so on. But you can see here that this respectable son is really thinking in the same way. I'm not really that fussed on you, Dad, but I'm after the things that you can give me. Now, here's, here's a little test for us. We haven't really started to apply this yet, but, but think about it. How would you finish this sentence? What I really want is, what I really want is, to be happy, to be well, to be successful, to be loved. You see, those are all the things that God can give us or can allow for to, to come into our lives, but they're not God Himself. And I wonder, as we think about that sentence, are we even getting close to being able to say, what I really want is God Himself. N not just what He gives me, not just the comfortable life, but God Himself. So, you see what's going on with this young chap's heart. He's, he's lost at home, joyless obedience, and his heart is really set on other things 
than the father who he's working for. Now, <clears throat> next little thing just to think about here, and, and that this is very dangerous. This is a, a very dangerous situation for him to be in because Jesus chooses to end this story in the most remarkable way. It doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, it closes with the elder brother outside the party. Sometimes people say, do you think he went into the party? And you've got to say, well, we don't know. It's a story. Uh, you know, uh, we don't know. The, the, the story ends on a cliffhanger. He cho it, chooses, it, it, it finishes with him choosing to be outside the party. <clears throat> he won't humble himself and enter the celebration. And actually, Jesus is making the point to these religious leaders. You're outside of God's party. You're lost. You've not been found by the Father. You look as if everything is fine, but you're strangers to him. Now, this would have been a shock to them because they thought that they were well connected, but they were not. And this is why being lost at home is so dangerous, because sometimes we don't know it. It's not hard to realize if we're lost in the far country, perhaps, because we're doing all the whole wild living thing. Our Instagram pictures are just incredible. But then if, if you're asked about God, you'd probably say, well, I'm just ignoring that part of my life. But at least we know. But if we're lost at home, we might, like these religious leaders, think we're fine. You see, the things that, that defined this elder brother were his hard work, the fact that he hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, those were all those things that actually kept him out of the party. So in a sense, he wasn't lost because of his badness. He was actually lost because of his goodness. It was his effort that kept him from accepting the Father's invitation. He was actually trusting in the fact that he was obedient and upright. And it's ironic, isn't it, whenever he can treat the Father in, in, in this way that he can claim to, to be so upright because actually the elder brother's place in, in this sort of a setting was at the top table leading the celebrations. He was sort of a, 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 an MC and a wingman and all the rest of it. And the, and the fact that he wouldn't go in uh, was a great insult and a very public insult. He was disgracing the Father just as much as the younger brother had. So it's an incredibly dangerous thing to be lost at home. But here's the third thing, and that is that this can change. Being lost at home can change and how it can change. This is one of the most amazing things about this parable. You remember we said that with the younger brother, the father comes out and he runs to him in order to embrace him and to welcome him in. And in this case, in verse 28, the father comes out and he pleads with the angry elder brother, won't you come in? And when the son complains and accuses him, he doesn't punish him. But he reasons with him in verse 31. Again, the father has been shown to be incredibly patient. This is the father, you see, who, who pleads with the elder brother, who acts in mercy towards the one he should cast off. And the story ends with the elder brother outside, but the invitation open. And that's surely a point to these religious leaders to saying, you know, you're grumbling about these sinners who are coming in through the doors, but you know what? They're found and you're still lost, but you can come in. Swallow your pride and walk through the door. 
And we shouldn't underestimate what all of this mercy and grace cost the father in the parable. All of his neighbors are, are, walking on, are, are looking on, and they're all sort of saying, if any son of mine did that, he'd feel the, the weight of my hand. But, but he keeps going. He acts in great love and humility, and it points to the fact that the father's grace and mercy really costs him. It costs it costs him to, to love us like this. It costs the Father, of course, the giving of his Son. Now, this event, you see, happens on the way to Jerusalem. It's quite late on in, in uh, Luke's gospel. And Jesus is, is heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. And there he would pay for our sins. He had the, the perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father. He never rebelled against his father. He loved him very much. He was the true elder brother. He never begrudged his service. He and the father united in love for all eternity, and he laid that all down willingly. That perfect relationship was somehow affected on the cross, for, for he was uh, forsaken by the father so that our, our, our sin could be paid for and our broken relationship with God put right. So you see, the, Jesus is, is, is actually saying, look, I, I'm doing what the elder brother should have done. I am seeking the lost people, and I'm bringing them in at cost to myself. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these, who could see these tax collectors coming in and hearing about a God who runs out to embrace us, well, they're seeing it portrayed for them in Jesus. And this is how being lost at home can change. It can change as we place our trust in the Lord. So do you see that there are two ways, there are two lost sons in this story. There are two ways to be lost. And, and there are those who are consciously running from God. They're doing their own thing. They're strangers from him. It's obvious. But there are those who can hide from God by being good. Do you know some people use religion to hide from the Savior. It's hard for us to get our heads around, perhaps, but they do. They, they use their religious efforts to say, well, at least I don't need that. I'm good enough. And that's what they use to measure their good enoughness, their religious effort. I don't need what the wild guys need because I've been good. It's quite a thing, isn't it? And, and, and as much as we, as we learn about this idea of grace, we just see that is, it is so alien to the fallen human heart that, that we, will, we will so quickly run from it because to embrace it demands us accepting something about ourselves, that we really are in need, that we really do have nothing to offer. You remember whenever the prodigal realizes the, the difficulty of a situation, the first instinct of his heart is to say, I will earn this because grace is so hard for us to grasp. But there's something here that we need to see, and, and this is part of what I guess has is, is shaped my thinking a little bit and maybe something of the, the tone of Hill Street. And that is that, that it is so easy to be a recovering elder brother. So many of us are in that position. 
especially true of us if we grew up in Christian homes. Because we, we maybe were never all that bad. We were the kids that, that never gave our parents any trouble. And so, along with that, the danger is that we begin, begin to think it was never a big deal for God to save us. He didn't have to try as hard with us as He did for some other people. And so, we don't really grasp how much we need grace. And we think in terms of what God owes us and what we've done for Him. And then whenever our lives don't work out as they sometimes should, we sort of go, God, but all these years I've been slaving for you. What's going on? There's a little passage in the Prodigal God, Keller's book, that uh, was like a light bulb moment for me. This is what it says. There are many genuine Christians who are elder brother-ish. He coins that term, elder brother-ish. Elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger towards life's circumstances, hold grudges long and bitterly, look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles, experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery, have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives, have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. What a terrible picture. So you see, this is, is not just a parable that teaches us about what lost people look like and that there can be lost religious people as, lo as well as lost irreligious people. It's saying that this hostility to grace and this idea that we have earned something from God is a, is a dangerous thread that runs right through even believers and can affect our hearts in these sorts of ways. And I remember as I read this, it was like somebody turning on the lights for me. It, it, it allowed me to see a lot of things much, much more clearly and what I was seeing maybe sometimes pastorally with people but also in my own heart. Because when as Christians we start to relate to God like Pharisees, like elder brothers, everything goes wrong. And it's so easy to do that. Terrible danger for believers. We become elder brother-ish. We get infected with the spirit of the Pharisee. And we say, but, but I've been good. What am I getting for it? And we always need to see, you see, that both sons needed saving. Both needed to throw themselves on the Father's mercy and grace. And no matter how hard we have tried, how well we have lived, how upright we have been, how little trouble we've ever given to our parents, we are sinners that need to be rescued by grace. We don't have time to, to look at this now, but but if this is sort of striking a chord with you, do you know what I would really encourage you to, to read and to meditate on? It's Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. It's the story of Jesus at Simon's house. Simon's a Pharisee. And, and Simon's a Pharisee who, who actually looks pretty sympathetic to Jesus. He's welcomed Jesus to a meal in his house. And, and a woman comes in, and she's probably had a fairly... Interesting life, and, and, 
And she, she breaks a perfume jar over Jesus' feet and she weeps and wipes his feet with her hair. It's all quite embarrassing, really. And Simon is, is just uncomfortable. And Jesus knows Simon's heart. And he tells a little parable about two people, one who'd had a great debt cancelled and one who'd a little debt cancelled. And he said, which of these people will love the one who cancelled the debt more? And Simon says, well, I guess the one with the greater debt cancelled. Now, of course, it's easy for us to get that story wrong, isn't it? It's easy for us to think that Jesus is just explaining to Simon, look, this woman loves me so much because she had a really wild life and I forgave her loads and loads and loads of sins. You should understand that, Simon. She's not like you. But actually what the story is saying is, Simon, if you only knew how much you needed to be forgiven, you'd be doing this too. And that's the thrust of this story to us. That, that he needed to be forgiven loads but we just don't see it. He didn't see it. And some of us are going to struggle in our Christian lives until we realize that it was a really big deal for God to save you. You didn't deserve it. And until you see it, you're going to think, of course he saved me. What else can he do for me? There's a beautiful hymn by Murray McShane, and uh, it talks about getting to heaven and then understanding how much we owe. This is how it goes, first verse. When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's wondrous story. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And then the last verse, he basically says, Lord, help me to see it now. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show, by my love, how much I owe. This story has marvelously helped me. And, and if it strikes a chord with you, I, I really would encourage you both to, to read uh, Keller's book, but also to sit down with Simon and the woman with the jar of perfume and with Jesus and say, where do I fit in here? Do I see how much I owe? Because as we start to grasp that, so much changes.